that you just really speak your truth through him and that they'd be your words, not his, God. Um, just in this time, really allow us to rest on the Sabbath day and just really focus and turn our eyes upon you. Um, we thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. Thank you, praise team. Um, yeah. Chris, the baby room might not be working, so if, if you need to open these doors so uh, baby Chloe and her parents can... I love this little stage. Of, sorry, side note. Uh, all of our little babies, they're like right at that six, seven months, and this is when they start to like talk all the time, aka, and they make a lot of noise. We love it in here. Uh, we're not uh, offended by that in any way, shape, or form. Uh, if you have your Bibles with you, turn to Jericho, oh, Jericho, Joshua chapter 6, which talks about Jericho, Joshua chapter 6, verses 1 through 27. We're going to read the whole chapter together. Uh, a little long, but I think worth it. Joshua chapter 6, verses 1 through 27. We're reading in the NASB, uh, as always. Um, and if you do not have your Bibles with you, the words are on the screen. Uh, and as always, the capital L-O-R-D highlighted blue on your screen is the Hebrew word Yahweh, which you will hear me read Yahweh, which is God's gift name. So Joshua chapter 6, verses 1 through 27. Now Jericho was tightly shut because of the sons of Israel. No one went out and no one came in. And Yahweh said to Joshua, see, I've given Jericho into your hand with its king and the valiant warriors. You shall march around the city, all the men of war circling the city once. You shall do so for six days. Also seven priests shall carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. Then on the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times and the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall be that when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, then you, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout and on the wall the city will fall fall down flat, and the people will go up every man straight ahead. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant, and let seven priests carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of Yahweh. Then he said to the people, Go forward and march around the city, and let the armed men go before the Ark of Yahweh. And it was so that when Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets of the ram's horns before Yahweh went forward and blew the trumpets, and the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh followed them. The armed men went before the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard came after the ark while they continued to blow the trumpets. But Joshua commanded the people, saying, You shall not shout, nor let your voice be heard, nor let a word proceed out of your mouth until, that, until the day I tell you, Shout, then you shall shout. And so he had the ark of Yahweh taken around the city, circling it once. Then they came to the camp and spent the night in the camp. Now Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of Yahweh. The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of Yahweh went on continually and blew the trumpets, and the alarm men went before them. And the rear guard came after the ark of Yahweh while they continued to blow the trumpets. Thus the second day they marched around the city once and returned the camp and did so for six days. Then on the seventh day they rose early at the dawning of the day, marched around the city the same manner seven times. Only on that day they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time when the priests blew the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for Yahweh has given you the city. The city shall be under the ban, and it will be all that it belongs to Yahweh. Only Rahab the harlot and all who are with her with the house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom he, we sent. But as for you, only keep for yourself the things under the ban, so that you do not covet them, and take some of the things under the ban, and make the camp of Israel accursed, and bring trouble on it. But all the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron are holy to Yahweh. They shall go into the treasury of Yahweh. So the people shouted. The priests blew the trumpets. And when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted with a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up to the city, every man straight ahead, and they took the city. They utterly destroyed everything in the city, both man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep and donkey, with the edge of the sword. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, go into the harlot's house and bring the woman and all she has out of there as you have sworn to her. So the young men who were spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brothers and all she had. They also brought out all her relatives and placed them outside the camp of Israel. They burned the city with fire and all that was in it, only the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of Yahweh. 
However, Rahab the harlot and her father's household and all she had, Joshua spared, and she has lived in the midst of Israel to this day, for she hid the messengers for whom Joshua sent out to spy Jericho. Then Joshua made them take an oath at the time, saying, Cursed before Yahweh is the man who rises up and builds the city Jericho. With the loss of his firstborn, he shall lay its foundation, and with the loss of his youngest son, he shall set up its gates. And so Yahweh was with Joshua, and his fame was, all, was in all the land. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There is a struggle, a tension, a battle that every single person in here and every single in the world goes through each and every single day of our lives, whether you like it or not. No matter how old you are, how young you are, whatever life stage you are, every single person goes through the struggle. And the struggle is a thing that I call, I don't even have my clicker, the battle of way. Whose way is it going to be? My way? Your way? His or her way? You see this every single day, parents and children. Parents, as you know, once your children become teenagers, apparently this thing becomes real, right? Whose way is it going to be? The struggle is indeed real. Husbands and wives, brothers and sisters, friends, teacher and students, employer and employee, even pets and pet owners go through this battle of way. Whose way is it going to be? Some people call it the battle of will, but whose way is going to reign supreme? That's the thing, right? I want to wear this, and your mom says, no, my way or her way sort of thing. And we all hope each and every single time and each and every single day all throughout our lives that people would just allow us, right, to have our way. Whereas Burger King says, indeed, have it your way, right? Now here in Joshua 6, this is the question. The issue that confronts Israel and therefore us as they are finally about to begin the conquer of the promised land. Now, this isn't new for Israel. We've seen this issue play out throughout basically every chapter so far. But by far here in chapter 6, the battle of way between God's way or Israel's way takes center stage and demands a definitive answer. Whose way or which way is it going to be? His way or my way? Now, the answer is simple. We've seen it all throughout this story. It's God's way. In chapter 1, be strong and courageous to do what? Do exactly as God says, a.k.a. his way. In chapter 2, Rahab surrenders to God because of his way and who he is and how strong he is and all those things. In chapter 3, they cross the river, God's way, not their way, in the worst of places, at the worst of times, in the worst of, and most interesting of ways. Chapter 4, remember how they got you across? Why? Do it God's way, because that's the way, indeed, it matters. Chapter 5, but first, God, always keep God first, worship first, because that's the best way to live, as he says. And then in chapter 6, Israel, indeed, defeats Jericho. The walls fall down and take the city, but that's not the point, as we've seen. The point is how Israel conquers Jericho, which, as you know, and if we read just now, all according to God's instruction and his method. So it might seem that we really don't need to look deeper into what it is that God's way is. Like you might be like, okay, Pete, we get it. It's God's way or bust. You've said that a million times. You always continually say things like that. But do we really know what that looks like? Like many of us will pray, I want to do things God's way. I want to do it according to his will. I want to follow his word. All that kind of stuff. We say it a lot with our words. I know we do. We pray it a lot. I know we do. But do we actually, like, get it as much as we actually say it? 
Like if I asked you, what is God's way, how would you answer? Or if I said, in this situation, what would God's way be, how would you answer? Do we know? And basically, maybe the question is, how do we know if we are indeed living God's way or our way or some whatever version of God's way that we think, right? How do we know? Because if we're really living God's way, in my opinion, all of the struggles that we talked about earlier, parents versus children, friend versus friends, siblings, husband, wife, all that stuff really becomes moot because then we live by one way, not two competing ways, one way, and that's God's way. It's that proverb we talk about all the time in here, Proverbs 22. Train up a child in the way that he should go or she, that when even he or she is old, he or she will not depart from it. Basically, do train, raise your child to be exactly as God created him or her to be, and they will never depart from that. But there's one way. It's not my way. It's not my wife's way. It's God's way, the way that he made my kids. Last week, it was Kara's fifth birthday. Today is Connor's seventh birthday. I'm hoping that I'm raising him God's way, to be the person that God created him to be, not the way that I want him to be. So the point of all of this, and the way that we help this text, which was written thousands of years ago, make sense to us is to ask, simple question, how do we know if we are living according to God's ways? What are the markers? What are the indicators? What's the proof that we're actually living God's way and not Fill in the blank way, my way, your way, the world's way, your boss's way, your parents' way, whoever's way. And to keep it 100, if you remember from last week, you can look the part on the outside, but if you're rotten on the inside, it matters for not. Right? You can play the game. You can look the part. You can feel as if you're living God's way, but if indeed your heart is not aligned with his, then it doesn't really mean for much. So then, question. Again, ask yourself, all the things that you are doing, is this indeed God's way? And maybe another question is, why does it even matter? Why do we need to do so? So the question of the day is, how can we tell if we're living God's way? And I think you might be a bit surprised. So four ways today that we can tell. One, God's ways is a fool's way. The second way, God's way is always two-way. God's way is a long way. And then fourth, God's way is the grace way. Okay? Four ways. We'll go over that. But quick, first, as always, a quick little summary of what's going on. Israel has finally gotten to the place where it's time to conquer Jericho. But as the text says, Jericho was tightly shut. The Bible loves to do this. Create two basically same words that mean the same thing, right? So it's supposed to create suspense. Basically, there's a big old problem to them conquering Jericho, just like there was at the river, at the place they wanted to cross. There's this big old wall. It's shut, and nobody's getting in or out of this place. Then God says, Joshua, come here. I got instructions for you. I've already given you Jericho, but here's what you're going to do. You're going to assemble a caravan of people, a big old lineup of people, and this is what's going to go. You're going to have warriors. You're going to have seven priests carrying the ark with their seven trumpets. You're going to have real warriors and then everybody else in your camp. Take all these people, march around the city wall once for, per day for six days, but don't make a sound for the people. Just blow the trumpets. And on the seventh day, march around it seven times, and after the seventh time, blow the trumpets real loud, and then make the people shout, and the wall is going to fall. And then go, take the city. That's the instructions. Pretty simple. Laid out. We hear, we learn, we read that Joshua does exactly that, tells the people and the priests and everyone exactly as God tells them, 
and the people follow it to AT exactly as they're told, and then everything happens exactly as God said it would. And then there's some instructions about what to do with the city. Burn it down, destroy everyone in it, save the gold, silver, bronze, and the iron. Set it aside, go get Rahab and her family as you promised. And then Joshua lays a curse as the city would never be built again. And if so, bad things would happen. There's what is going on. Now in it, what you find is that you see that God has a way of doing things, doesn't he? He's had instructions the entire way for Israel and for Joshua. And today, through this, I think we're going to learn what it means for us to be living according to God's way so that we may not be confused any longer. So the first is a fool's way. As I read chapter 6 and other parts of scripture, I couldn't help but think that in my honest and just humble opinion, God is a troll. Period. He's just a troll. Like the best one you've ever seen. If you analyze the way that God does things, it's just really awkward and weird and not smart most of the time. It's just comical. It's silly if you want to use that word. Like, God has, quote-unquote, in the world, he's got lots of issues, he's got enemies, he's got evil, he's got sin. And in my opinion, because God is God, he should just deal with it on his own. And if he did, it probably would go pretty well. It would probably be pretty easy, because, you know, no one can put up a fight against God. He created all things in the first place anyway. But, though God could handle it this way, he decides to do things differently. He chooses all throughout scripture to choose little and inferior things, entities like us, human beings, to fight his evil, to fight the evil, to fight the demonic, to fight oppression, to fight things of that nature. If you read all throughout scripture, this is it, isn't it? Isn't it funny that you have the greatest warrior anyone's ever seen in Goliath and he chooses the littlest of the little and says, go get five smooth stones and then you're going to go kill this man? And he does, but you don't even use all five, he chooses the first one. Like, this is stupid. Hey, you know what? I got to rescue a bunch of people, a slaves from a nation, the greatest nation the world has ever known, the most powerful leader in Pharaoh. And you know what? I'm going to choose a speech impediment dude who don't want to talk named Moses, and he's going to be the leader that's going to lead these people. Oh, you know what? I got to bring my own son, my own self to the world to save it. That's a really big task. Like, he can't die. He can't do these things. But I'm going to choose a 12-year-old, not yet married virgin to bring this child into the world because, you know, that's a good thing to do. How many 12-year-olds in here want to birth the Lord of the universe? I didn't think so, right? It's not, it don't make no sense. Even the cross, have you thought about that? The cross, the symbol of our freedom, the symbol of returning, the symbol of salvation, all those things is actually the symbol of death, brutality, and execution to everyone else but us Christians. And yet for us, it's freedom, grace, love, triumph, and glory. God uses stupid, dare I say, ways to do his work all the time. I mean, just read 1 Corinthians, and I'll have it with you. 1 Corinthians 1, chapter 18 to 25. Let's read it together, okay? He says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us Christians who are being saved, it is the power of God. The cross is foolishness to everybody else, but to us it is power. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, hmm, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside, hmm. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews asked for signs and the Greeks searched for wisdom, but we preached Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. 
Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The stupidity of God is smarter than the smartest person in the world, and the most weakest of God is greater and stronger than the strongest man in the world. So whose wisdom are you following? God's stupidest day is infinitely smarter than the world's smartest man's smartest day, a.k.a. According to whose ways are we living? And as I've said in here many times, make no mistake, we are all worshipers. We all worship, serve, or live according to something and or someone. It's just a matter of who. I always tell parents, 99% of the things that our children know, we taught them. And the 99% we know, our parents taught us most and always. That's why they always say the apple does not fall far from the tree. Hmm. Now you might be wondering, okay, Pete, why does God want me and want us to do stupid and silly things? Why not do it, I don't know, the smart way, the way that makes sense? And the more and more I think about it, the reason why I think God does this is because only when we do stupid and silly things will people think, oh, that's God's way, because only God would do things like that. If what you're doing sounds so good and normal to everyone around you, you're probably not doing it God's way, because it wouldn't make sense to them. Because again, read Scripture, right? Now, Make sure you hear me when I say that this does not mean that we ignore wisdom or knowledge, but it means that there's always going to be a tension. But be absolutely clear that if you follow God long enough, God will at times for sure ask you and I to do foolish and silly things according to our judgment and the world. But though his ways are foolishness to the world, we will follow and indeed have life. A pastor by the name of Brian Lord says, Christianity ain't for control freaks. Because control freaks control the Holy Spirit right out of our lives. The control freaks control God right out of the church. And because, unfortunately for us, God and the Holy Spirit is a perfect gentleman, he will do, he will not he will not force himself upon you. If, you. if he's not invited to the party, he will not come. As we always said, God's love is offered but not forced because love that is forced is slavery and or rape. So God goes to Joshua on the cusp of this really great thing and he goes, here's how you're going to get through this big old wall and the gates that are completely tightly shut to you and conquer Jericho. He says, take the ark with the priests and my presence that's in it, march around the city for seven days, once a day for the first six, and then seven on the seventh day. Make sure you don't blow, make sure you don't make a sound, blow the trumpet once, and do exactly as I tell you. And then after all that's done, the wall is going to fall. I don't know about you, but if I'm Joshua, I'm going, uh-huh, sure, God. For real? Like you, so here's this wall. It's probably like 25, 50 feet up. I should have done the measurement. Sorry, I didn't look it up for you. My, I apologize. But it's a huge wall. Ain't nobody getting in. And they got to conquer this wall, get through this wall. If you watch Lord of the Rings or anything, like, you know, you have the scaling of the wall. You got to throw a bunch of people up there, ladders, and you get, like, shot down and people die, all that kind of stuff. That kind of an idea. And he goes, Joshua, don't worry about that. Just take a bunch of people, take my ark, take some trumpets. Don't, no weapons, no really needed. Maybe some warriors to guard the ark because that's really important. Just march around the city one time one day and then come back. 
Then do it again the second day, and then come back. Do this for six straight days. Don't really make no sound of the people. Just blow the trumpet once and then come back. And on the seventh day, do it seven times. And on the seventh time, then your trumpet, your people are going to blow the trumpets, and then everyone's going to shout, and the wall is going to, dare I say, magically fall down. And he goes, okay, cool. Like, for real? Like, I know we've read this story a bunch of times, but would you do it? Would you do it? Would you follow him? Now, and don't miss the point. Can you not imagine that as they're circling around this wall, the people of Jericho are thinking like, we're going to get conquered. These people have been wiping out cities and kingdoms left and right on their way, doing crazy things, making water stand up. And as the people are marching around after the fourth day, because we're pompous people, people on the inside of the wall probably be like, those stupid Israelites, what are they doing? Just marching around this stupid wall. What are they going to do? They're probably hurling insults at them. They're talking smack. Oh, uh, you going to march around again today? Good one. What are you going to do? What is marching going to do? I can imagine some troll on the inside, a.k.a. Pete Chung, would probably be like, you know what? 40 years in the wilderness and they done lost their mind. They don't have no idea what reality is anymore because marching around a wall don't ever make a wall move. It all sounds real stupid. It does. Because it is. Make no mistake. But if it's God's way, his ways are not my ways or our ways. I mean, ask yourself, when's the last time you did something foolish for God? When out of your little comfort zone in your lane and did something that God called you to do that you knew you should have done according to scripture for God. When I look at my life, and, and just being honest, all of the big monumental moments in my life were all moments where people told me I was being stupid. Yeah, you know what? Don't be a lawyer. Be a pastor. Uh-huh, sure. Yeah, you know what? Drive across the country to go apologize to your deadbeat dad at the time. Give up your car to reconcile with him because he's worth it. Uh-huh, not really. Yeah, sure, invite a very broken and fragile 18-year-old girl from Virginia to Vancouver to rehabilitate her life until she's better. And it doesn't matter the fact that your wife does not even know her and you're inviting a young female into your home. Sounds real stupid. Oh, yeah, and by the way, you have a one-year-old. Uh-huh. Yeah, sure, you know what? Don't go back to Vancouver, even though your family's stuck indefinitely and we don't know when they're going to be back. Oh, yeah, and even more stupidly, bring your three-year-old down so you can be a single father down here as a full-time pastor. Take him away from his mom because apparently that's good for him. Uh-huh. Yeah, include the junior highs in this worship. They'll never listen to you. They'll never pay attention. Mm-hmm. God's way just doesn't make sense most of the time. Mm-hmm. Die for the stupid people that are crucifying you so that they may have life in you. Mm-hmm. That makes a whole lot of sense. But it's hard for us to know, for us control freaks in the room, that just control God right out of the picture. If you haven't done something foolish for God in a long time, you're probably not living his way. I'm just telling you, straight up. And if everyone in your life is agreeing with all the things that you're doing, especially non-Christians in the world, then you're probably not doing something that God wants you to do. And the second way is two-way. As God has done throughout this entire book, he takes Joshua one more time and says, look, I've given Jericho into your hands. The promised land, it's yours. But to get it into your hands, he says, you're going to have to march. 
It's all yours. It's prepared for you. It's ready for the taking. Trust me, you're going to have it. But you got to show up first in March and do a foolish thing for me. You may notice that God's way is always two-way, his part and our part. If you read scripture, you'll find out that God always lays out his promises and then he lays out the truth. I would not be in this position if God didn't call me and then I went. He goes, you know what? I'm going to die on the cross. I'm going to make a path for your sinless butt to have eternal life. But to get there, you got to believe that a dying Savior is the Savior of the world. Then you got to live my way, not your way. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do all this for you, secure everything that you've ever wanted. Victory over death even. But to do so, you got to love your enemies. you got to pray for those who persecute you. You gotta die to live. You gotta deny yourself and crucify your sinful desires each and every single day. You gotta show up. I've given you everything that you've ever wanted, but you gotta choose worship first. Whereas Philippians says, you gotta work out your faith with fear and trembling because God is the one who's already at work in you. His part, our part, two way. You gotta show up. God does 99% of the work, and your 1% is to show up and do your part, which is say, God, I'm ready for whatever it is that you want me to do, even if it is stupid and foolish to everybody else but you. See, to do a foolish thing is you have to say yes. Got to show up. You got to listen. How many parents in the room Tell your children all the instructions, line it out to a T, A, B, C, all the way through Z, 99% of all the work you did. You put everything in there, yada, 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 and then when they get to it, they don't follow your directions. It's like preparing like a delicious taco for your kid. You put it all in there. You put the guac, the sour cream, the meat, the rice, the lettuce, the salsa, and everything, and as soon as he gets it, instead of putting it in his mouth and eating it like this, he just thinks and flips it upside down and goes, I'm going to eat it with my hands. show up. Let him do his part, then you got to do your part. But if you're not letting him do his part, then it's only all your part, and it's not two-way at all. I find it funny that a lot of times you'll be like, oh, yeah, you know what, so-and-so, that's just who he is. Pete, he's just impatient. He's brash. But all that means is that we're not doing anything to follow God's way. We're just being me and my sin, isn't it? So no, I actually don't know when someone says, you know what? Oh, so-and-so is just like that. No, I don't really know what that means. If you're an impatient person, you're just impatient. That's just, or if you're a nice person, a.k.a. non-confrontational, and you're just always nice and non-confrontational, you're not really doing much of anything, are you? Because God's way sometimes confronts. If you always have to win every argument and you always win every argument because you're smarter but you're never dying to yourself and losing to somebody else, you're not probably doing anything God's way. You're not doing anything two-way. You're definitely just doing it your way. God's way is always two-way. I'll give you Jericho, but you got to march. What has God promised to you that you have to march to get? It's always two-way. And the third, God's way is a long way, and this is the one we hate the most, maybe. Joshua, march around this city. Not once, not twice, not three times, not four times. They'll keep going, not five, not six, seven. But on the seventh day, march seven times. 
And it's not because seven is some magical number. Yeah, there's a little bit of significance there, but not really in this context. And God could have clearly made the wall fall the first time, but he doesn't. So why? Could it just be that he was testing Israel's faithfulness, whether they were actually going to keep doing the stupid, foolish thing until he said so? What would have happened if Israel on the fourth day being like, yo, this is stupid, bro. I ain't doing this no more. Like, are you serious? Like, is this really going to happen? Three more days of this stupidity? Then what happens? What if they skipped a day, just got tired? You know what? God's not, God won't know. If we don't do this one day, it won't matter. As long as we show up the seventh day, it'll be all right. And again, Israel's probably hearing the smack talk from across the wall. People at the top of the wall or whoever. Oh, you going to march again? Oh, here comes those stupid Israelites marching again. But they kept showing up over and over and over. And isn't that the story of most of our lives? Parents know this. You pray for your children day in and day out and day in and day out. You show up continually over and over and over again. And oftentimes God's way just doesn't work our way during our time, does it? You want things right now. You want it when you wanted it, like yesterday, but it doesn't always happen that way. You wanted it how you wanted it, but God doesn't give it to you how you want it. He gives it to you how he says he's going to give it to you. Our part is to keep showing up, no matter how long you're supposed to do it. I referenced this earlier. When my sister Gloria was 18, and I invited her over to Vancouver because I felt like God was saying she needs to come to rehabilitate her life. There was no timeline to this story. My mother-in-law and my wife said, how long? And I was like, I don't know. And they're like, oh. And they just had this look on their face like, okay. And every single day, anytime she needed it, she had to show up. Over and over and over. Hoping and praying that God would do his thing. And indeed, he certainly has. 18 months we did that, actually, over and over and over again. What if you've got to wait? Are you willing? Because God says so? Even if it's for the long while? God's way is a long way. Then the last, we finish here. God's way is the grace way. Now, depending on how well you read the chapter or paid attention or how well you read the Bible or particularly if you aren't a Christian, you're probably wondering when and if I'm going to address the disturbing part of this chapter. You know the part where God seems like he's a maniacal, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleansing, genocide, tyrant kind of a person. Kill everybody, all the men and the women, all the animals and everything in it. I've had some people be like, why does God got to kill all the animals? Like, what did they do? God commands the utter and total destruction of everything. Now, we're not going to deal with it in detail. That's next week. Come back for that if you're here. I highly encourage you to read chapter 7 and, or the whole book uh, between now and then, but we'll touch on it here just, just a bit. Now, I can definitely say that God isn't into ethnic cleansing, but he is into what some call spiritual cleansing. And we know this because Rahab and her family, this is a story, right? as we know, is a Canaanite. She's one of them. She's a foreigner, but she is saved. So God isn't completely wiping out every foreigner, and he's not completely wiping every Canaanite off the earth, but he is doing something, and he's wiping the sin of Canaan off the earth. Again, more on this next week. But if you remember, Rahab is saved because she's completely surrendered and turned her faith to Yahweh. 
She helped risk her life to save the Israelite spies. And as you remember from chapter two, if you were here, if she was found out doing this, they would have immediately killed her for treason. But she risked it because she understood who God was. So if you remember in chapter two, they make an agreement. And once the conquering of Jericho happens, they tell her, hey, hang this little scarlet cord outside your window. And if you keep this promise and don't give us a position away, then we will keep our end of the promise and you'll be safe even when we conquer your land. We noted that it was entirely ridiculous that Rahab relies upon God's mercy and grace and salvation because up until this point, all God had been doing was wiping everyone out in their path. Like where would she get the idea that this mighty Yahweh who's been wiping people out would actually have mercy on someone like her? Remember, she's a prostitute. She's a woman. She's lowly. She's on the outside of the city. All these things. Why would she ever have an idea that this Yahweh God would ever do anything for her? But she does. And as you know, mercy and grace in battle and in war back in those days, or in any days for that matter, is not really a thing. But indeed, God does. But the whole Rahab story here, finished off in chapter 6, highlights what God's way is all about. And that's why we finish. Why does God save Rahab? Why? She doesn't do much of anything, does she? I mean, like, let's just be real. From an honest perspective, from the point, from the from human perspective, what good is Rahab? If Houston was going to be destroyed today, would you pick out the stripper from the strip club downtown and all of her family because she did a good deed? She's the last person you would save. Save J.J. Watt maybe, but not her. Kidding. Why? Why? Because it highlights what this is all about. Interestingly, the excavators of Jericho, basically the people who go and dig up the ancient ruins, they all agree for the most part, right? that Jericho and everything in it was smashed when they went there. All the possessions, all the stuff, everything was rubble. And basically, when they think about how it happened, they all have kind of decided that most likely it was something like an earthquake. All the walls fell down and everything all happened, which is crazy because, indeed, we found out that the wall falls down. I think there's a possibility that when the trumpets finally played and the people shouted, then the earthquake shook and the whole thing came down. But here's the most interesting part. Do you remember where Rahab lived? Do you, does anyone remember? Where, where was Rahab's house? Huh? In the wall. On the wall. So here's Rahab, okay? Just, just, just picture this with me. Here's Rahab. A bunch of Israelite spies come in, okay? And she decides to hide them, risk her life, lie to her own fellow countrymen about their whereabouts, devise this plan to get them saved. She does all that. And then they tell her, wait, we're going to come and we're going to take the city like we've done everything else in our way so far because God is God. And you wait in your house and you hang the scarlet cord outside and we come after we've taken the city and we've ruined it all and we've conquered it. Then we're going to come by and we're going to save you. We won't burn you or kill you, all those things, as long as you have this thing. Which means as the wall is falling, as the people are marching around the wall, Rahab and her family are just chilling. Not really chilling. They're probably nervously shaking. If it was me, just like, oh my goodness, my goodness, what's going to happen? And they're sitting there and then all of a sudden the whole wall falls down and they are not touched. Everything else crushed, but Rahab and all of her possessions and all of her family, all good. Would you have stayed? Talk about foolish. Talk about two-way. And talk about long. Seven days of watching them march around their stupid wall.
But more crazy than even that, which is crazy, is what this story ultimately represents. And again, more on this later. Because what you're having here in Joshua is a picture of what's going to happen at the last day. I hope you know. On the last day, when Jesus comes, he's going to judge the world. He's going to separate the sheep and the goats, as they say in Scripture, right? Some going to make it, and some ain't going to make it. And if you read Matthew and other things, a.k.a. many aren't going to make it, and only a few are going to make it. And in that day, there will not be much of any grace at all, because you've had your time. And here, in Joshua, that's what's happening. Time has come. The judgment has come for Canaanites. God has spoken. They have not listened for a long, 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 long time. And he's saying it's about done. We'll talk about that next week on where this all comes from. It goes all the way back to Genesis. We'll just talk about it. But when this happens, the people that make it are one kind and the people that don't make it are another. And if you read the story and you're understanding what this is about, the only Canaanite that makes it in all of Joshua is Rahab and her family. And why? Because she surrendered to God. She said, it's God's way or no way. It's him or bust. See, in God's story, in God's way, he doesn't save the strong or the smart or the mighty or the worthy with all the accolades of people who have lots of money. None of that. None of that matters to God, I hope you know. The only thing that matters to God are the people who recognize he's God, he's perfect, I'm wretchedly not God and not perfect, and I'm going to say, God, take me and all of my shame and my stupidity and my sin, but if you just have me, I will have you. Just take me, please, just please, oh please, oh please, just give me your great grace and mercy that I don't deserve. And he goes, okay. But all the while, most of us are trying to live our lives our way because we think we're better or smarter than him. I don't find it actually coincidental that Rahab is a prostitute because only people like her, the poorest of the poor, the lowest of the low, will reach out and get the help of the ones that can give it because everyone else is too proud. They always say men who are lost never ask for directions. That's the way the most of the world works when it comes to God. And notice that she's continually called a harlot or a prostitute or a whore throughout this process. Her sin is not ignored. God's way is not for you to become perfect. God's way is for you in all of your sin and all of your wretchedness and everything you got. You present yourself naked and unashamed in front of God and say, God, this is entirely who I am. If you would have mercy upon my wretched soul, then I know because you say so and you promise and you'll save me. And God saves Rahab. Why? Because she heard about who God was and she said, that guy is the guy that I'm going to cling to and and throw all my weight in. Just like the Passover, the people who believed the stupidity of killing a lamb and painting the blood over your doorway, they were saved. Just like Rahab believed in the promise and hung a red scarlet cord, which is supposed to represent the blood of Jesus, she was saved. And just like us, stupid Christians, believe that a dying Savior on a cross and this blood that flows that we eat and we drink all the time as a reminder is the thing that saves us because we believe that that Jesus is a Savior of the world who will conquer death and that you and I will have nothing to be afraid of because when death comes knocking on the door, you'll be like, death, what you got? You ain't got nothing on me, bro, because I'm getting up after this. Whose way is it going to be? It's not a coincidence that we believe in this thing. 
That's the symbol of execution. Our modern day example of that, you know what it is? It's called the electric chair. And we wear it around our necks and our ears. God's way is not what you think most of the time. But his way always wins. I mean, isn't this the way of the cross, the cross? You know, isn't this the way of God, the cross? To live as Christ and to die as gain? Mm-hmm. Where life always comes through death, when we kill our sin and we have God kill our sin, then we have life. The kingdom that belongs to the poorest of these and not to the rich or the famous. The way of grace, the way for fools. Fam, God's ways are not our ways, period. Joy for joys for the people who give, not take. Whose way are you living? I'm going to lead you in a time of quick prayer before I ask the priest to come up and we pray for offering and whatnot. But I want you to think about your life. Like, just for real, for real. Many of you have so many dreams. Many things that you all want to do, I know. And you have a lot of plans, a lot of endeavors, a lot of things that you hope to do. The one question you got to ask yourself is, whose dream are you living? Who gave you that dream? And then ask yourself, that dream, what do you have to do to get it? And the things you got to do along the way, whose life does that represent? The way of Christ or the way of something else? Ask yourself, the life that you live, what are you doing to live this life? Are you putting him first? Are you listening for his way so you can do exactly as he says? Maybe for some of us, what we need is to think about the dying Savior who says, forgive them for they know not what they do. To follow that, because only he will do so. And then lastly, ask yourself, when's the last time you felt like God was asking you to do something pretty foolish? Things that nobody agreed with, things that didn't make any sense, but you knew that God was asking you. And ask yourself, what is it going to take for you to do that which God asks you to do? As you begin to pray, I hope you would see his promises and you would see the ways that he's wanting you to get it, his ways. And in doing so, I pray that you would, give, you would get grace and love from him. And the last thing that I'll say as you pray as you realize maybe that you're not doing things God's way, I hope you would receive his love and he's saying, that's okay, just follow me. No room for guilt in this kingdom.
because you're never going to do it very well anyway. But now that you know, follow my way. So will you pray that? Will you pray that? As I invite the praise team to come up. I've been hearing a lot throughout this Joshua series, a lot of like, you know what, I hate, aka I love this series, because it's been just rocking my heart, knowing that I have to do things, I have to respond. I feel like that's many of you. Will you respond to him? And if he says march, then you march. And the last thing, notice that when they take the city, there's not a single note of any one of Israel dying. Somehow they defeat a city. And this is a bunch of no good, no nothing. War- they're not warriors. They're just a bunch of sons who were born in the wilderness. And their parents weren't even warriors. But nobody dies because God gives them the city as long as they march. I hope we become a church that as we follow God and as we listen to his ways, that we'll march if he tells us to march. And in doing so, that we would then get the city, get his kingdom, and in doing so, live. So let's spend a minute and pray, respond, and then we'll pray for the offering, and then we will sing as we respond in song.